Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. At Igniting Your Faith, we strive to motivate listeners toward a full life in Jesus Christ by sharing the love and life-changing force of God's Word. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Uh, just before I get into the message, uh, we want to announce that next week we're going to have a special offering for disaster relief. And uh, we didn't do that today because we want to give you a chance to collect something if you're not prepared this morning to give for that. But we'll be dividing that two ways next week. Half will go to UMCOR, United Methodist Committee on Relief, to help the earthquake victims in Haiti. And the other half will go to local fire victims for the fire in Pottsville that took place last week. So if you'd like to give to that cause, we will um, set out some special uh, baskets, or you can mail it in. Just make sure that you, or, or give online, make sure you note what you want it given to, disaster relief on your offering. So today we're turning to the next episode in the progress of the children of Israel through the wilderness after they left Egypt. And this one takes place at Rephidim again, same place where the Lord provided water, when Moses struck the rock, and there the Amalekites attacked. And there are lessons for the spiritual battles we face in this episode. So we're going to look at that story here this morning together. Now this is the first battle that Israel engaged in after leaving Egypt. It took place less than three months after they've crossed the Red Sea. If you check out the next chapter, it says on the first day of the third month or the last day of the third month, the Israelites arrive at Sinai, the desert of Sinai. So this is in between there. They haven't come out of Egypt for very long, and uh, they're tired and they're thirsty. Remember that when they arrive at Rephidim. Now, looking back at this incident near the end of his life, Moses instructs the people with these words. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he's giving you, to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. Do you get the, the emotional uh, force of that? These guys were rotten to the core. They wanted to destroy you. They had no fear of God, and they attacked the weak, the laggers, those who are on the outskirts, the weary and worn. They are going to be wiped out from under heaven. Don't forget, and that's part of your duty when you get to the promised land. The Amalekites were descended from Esau. We need to look at them a little more carefully to see why this judgment is due them. They were descended from Esau's grandson, Eliphaz, by his concubine, Timnaz. You know, you go back in those genealogies, you can find where it says, such and so begat such and so, that fascinating list of such and so's. And there it is, Amalek is, is born to them. They were a ruthless people. And their attack on Israel at peace makes them something like the archetypal enemy of Israel. If you remember, there was enmity or strife, hatred between Esau and Jacob. And Esau's grandson picked that up 
and pass it along to his family. His tribe became the kind of people who, with no fear of God, who attack the weak, the weary, and the worn out. And their enemy, in enmity, their hatred was not just against Israel, it was against God. No fear of God. This is the people that the God of Jacob blessed. Hey, let's go get them. Enmity against believers and against God. And as Israel encamped there at Rephidim, the Amalekites attacked them without cause or provocation, targeting the weary and the weak. Now let's, let's look at the battle. Moses commands Joshua to lead a group of men to fight them. Now bear in mind, Joshua is a young man, and this is his first foray as general of Israel. Now, if you read later on, it says Joshua was a young man and he hung out at the tent of meeting. He liked to be in the presence of God. And this is his first appointment as a, a leader of the army. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And so verse 10 recounts it. Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, and you can picture this. Now, bear in mind, Moses is about 80 years old, okay? How many of you 80-year-olds, and I know we have some in our church, are able to hold up your arms for very long? Is that part of your exercise routine? <laughs> How long can you do it? As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with a sword. You see, as long as Moses held up his hands when the, with the staff in them, Israel was winning. When he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And Aaron and Hur helped him. And with Moses having his hands held up, Israel prevailed. And then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. And so Moses does that. And then Moses built an altar there, and he called it, The Lord is my banner. In Hebrew, it's Jehovah Nisi, or Yahweh Nisi, which translates as, The Lord is my banner. Because he said, hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. See, the Amalekites weren't just attacking the people of Israel. They were trying to defy God. Hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And just notice there God's long-term wrath against these people. The divine war, and I'm just going to give you a quick sketch of what happens to them. The divine war to eliminate the Amalekites was remembered from generation to generation until the duty came to Saul, the first king of Israel. Now, if you've been reading through the two-year uh, two Bible plan, we just read past that recently. 
how Samuel is given the word from the Lord to instruct the new king, you need to wipe out the Amalekites. Now it's time to fulfill that duty and the things that come out of that. And uh, 1 Samuel 15 records these words. The Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. And Saul does attack them. Now that's a story for another time, but uh, it has a sad and tragic uh, aspect to it because it's Saul's first act of rebellion and disobedience when he spares the evil king of the Amalekites, King Agag, and he kept some of the Amalekite plunder for fear of his men, fear of his men complaining that they didn't get to have some of that treasure. And because of that rebellion and because he feared men instead of God, the kingship was taken from Saul and given to David. And the prophet Samuel is the one who himself brings judgment on King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, with these words, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be. Reinforcing once again how ruthless and wicked the Amalekites were, represented by their king as a, a child killer who deserved death, who was the model for his people who were just like that. Now, maybe that helps you get your head around why God would have fierce wrath against these people. One of King Agag's descendants apparently escaped because and he became the ancestor of Haman the Agagite. Do you remember his name from the book of Esther? Whose murderous plot to attempt genocide against the Jews of the Persian Empire is recorded in the book of Esther. Continuing to hate the people of God, continuing to, to try to defy the God of heaven. Now, that's the story, and that's a little bit of what happens to the Amalekites. But I want us to think this morning about the spiritual lessons and application for us, for you and me, for us as a people. And I think there's five key lessons here. Now, there's probably actually many more, but I spotted five. <laughs> Maybe you can spot more when you're studying the passage yourself. First, the lesson for the stragglers. Second, lessons in God's wrath against Amalek. Third, the power of prayer. Fourth, Jesus is the one who brings spiritual victory. And fifth, the Lord is our banner. Now, I just want to think about these with each of each one with you for a couple minutes here. First, think about it. The Amalekites went for the stragglers, for the weak and weary, for those who were lagging behind. You know, that's possible for us to get into that situation as the people of God, as a believer, to, to start straggling and lagging behind from the rest of God's people, to lose connection and relationship and fellowship with them. It's one of the bad, sad things about COVID. It has encouraged a lot of laggers and stragglers behind. People who at first thought, well, I, I got to stay home because I'm vulnerable and I could get sick. 
but I can worship online. And, and folks at home, I'm, I may or may not be talking to you because some people still have to stay home. Some people are, have those immunocompromised systems and, and they are there. But a lot of people start straggling behind, not just from worship, but from their connection with other people in the body of Christ. People who would encourage them and lift them up and strengthen them. And it's not just COVID that'll do that. It's, it's a temptation for believers in general to get their, their, their feelings hurt or to get tired or to somehow take an excuse that it's okay to withdraw a little bit from the body of Christ. I, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm bothered by such and so, and I just don't want to see him. And so I'm just not going to go to church this day. Uh, or next week, or I, I think I'll just stop. And, and, and they may have faith, they may have a basic belief in God, they may trust in Jesus to some extent, but they start lagging behind from where God is leading his people. They start to become stragglers, and what happens to stragglers and those lagging behind is they're vulnerable to get picked off in the spiritual battle. You know, there's strength in numbers and there's strength in company when you are surrounded by God's army. But when you take yourself out from God's army and you try to do the spiritual walk on your own, you're going to be subjected to a new kind of attack, new kind of temptations, new kind of uh, efforts from the enemy to undermine you and your faith and your relationship with God. The Amalekites targeted the stragglers, those who were you know, what is a straggler? Those who are like, ah, we're, we're not, we're going to slow down and go our own pace. And maybe because I'm weary and tired. If you're weary and tired spiritually, the solution is not to slow down and go off by yourself. You know what that leads to is actually depression and more emptiness and more ennui. You know that French word? Sort of like, I give up, I don't want to do anything. Uh, well, what, what you may need to do is go and cry on a brother or sister's shoulders and say, I'm hurting and I'm weary and I need somebody to pick up my burdens and carry them. Stragglers are carrying their own burdens. There's nobody helping them carry them anymore. There's lessons here for God's people. Are you a straggler? It's time to catch up. It's time to rejoin the body. It's time to get connected again to people who will love you if you'll let them. And listen, the body of Christ is always filled with imperfect people because it's got you. <laughs> right? And it's got me. If you're looking for a perfect church, then you need to die and go to heaven because that's where that is. Right? Okay, that's where the saints and glory are perfected. Right now, we deal with imperfect people, and we are imperfect. And we need to learn to walk in grace and love and truth with each other and help each other and pick each other's burdens up and hold each other's arms up and walk the walk together there's strength there and there's protection amen that's right two what does god's wrath against the amalekites tell us it tells us that god does not forget the evil and injustice done in the world especially against his people he is patient and he wants everyone to repent and be saved and God has provided a way of forgiveness and redemption from his righteous wrath for those who trust in Jesus Christ. He's made a way for an Amalekite to become an Israelite in Jesus. 
Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. People in this world, many become like Amalekites because of the hardness of heart that comes from sin. They are enemies of God and at enmity with God and his people. But there's plenty of them who have the story of coming to Jesus, of seeing their need for their Savior, recognizing the hardness of their own heart, their own wickedness, and seeing, I do not want to be destroyed by the righteous wrath of God. I do not want to go to hell. I want to be in God's presence. I am sorry. I repent. And I receive the good gift of salvation that Jesus has to give. You died for me, Jesus. Amen. So I can become an Israelite. But you know what, folks? Not everybody chooses that. Evil will have its day of judgment. Jesus said, temptations must come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the ocean than to make one of these little ones stumble in temptation. You see, God is just. And he hates evil. And there are situations when, though he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, his patience reaches an end as it did with Amalek. And he will punish evildoers who continually refuse to repent. And he has promised that in the end there will be no evildoers left. Now you should be thankful that we have a God who is both just and gracious. You know, there are folks out there who want to believe that God is like uh, some kind of, of um, fairy tale wish giver. And everybody's going to go to heaven, and, and it doesn't matter whether you repent or not. You can have all the wickedness and evil in your heart, and when you die, it's all going to be okay. It's not true. And, and do you really want a God who's like that, who says in equal measure, to the, the, the monster, to the, the despots and tyrants and murderers and, and, and child killers of the world. Oh, you don't have to repent. You just come on in here and you can live forever and be happy. Do you want to be in a heaven like that? Do you want to be eternity, to be a place where that just keeps going on forever and ever? No, that's actually why God said at the time of the flood when he saw all the people of the world and all their hearts being wicked and no thought of their lives being good. Now, I, I can't take this anymore. All they do is hurt each other all the time. I'm going to wipe them out and start over. The wrath of God against wickedness. And it's still being revealed from heaven. Part of the gospel is the bad news about who we are and what we deserve because of our wickedness. That, that prepares us to see our need for the Savior. Good Lord, if because you're good and righteous and true, I couldn't get into your presence. I don't deserve to be there. But thank God you gave your son in my place. Amen? And yes, I put my faith in him. And yes, give me a new heart. I want to be born again. I want my spirit to be different. I want it to be like you. Give me a new spirit, Father. I want to be your child. I don't want to be a child of Amalek anymore. Child of the devil. You know, God sometimes uses human instruments to accomplish his divine judgment. As he did with the Amalekites in Israel's battle, including the ones that continued in, in the promised land. Sometimes his judgment is direct, as it was upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And sometimes his judgment is delayed. 
Some sins find you out right now, here and now, and some show up later. They're done in secret, but they show up later, and the judgment comes. And so now is the time to repent so we can escape judgment. God has given us this time, this is today, the day to turn our hearts to him and turn away from defying God and hating his people. Three, Moses' uplifted hands. They teach us about the power of prayer. You know, there can be no doubt that Moses' uplifted hands holding that staff represents the power of prayer. In this case, to deal with the battle against injustice. When the Amalekites attacked, Moses did not lead or fight the battle. I want you to notice that. He's the leader of the people, but he did not lead the battle and he did not fight in it. His role was to lift the staff and call for the help of God. And so long as his hands were lifted, God answered by helping Joshua and his soldiers prevail. The duty of God's leader was to lead by praying. You know, some of us are so materialistic and have such unbelief about the power of God that we think prayer should be the last thing you do. But it should be the first. Jesus' key leaders in the church, the apostles, when it came time for, as the church is growing and people were getting busy and ministries were multiplying, and it got so busy that some people were being neglected, and as they looked for a solution to that and they appointed the deacons, to begin to minister to those people who are being neglected. The apostle says it would not be right for us to neglect the word of God in prayer in order to wait on tables. Because they understood the priority that the power of God, the things of God, the kingdom of God, they advance by the power of prayer. And where there's no prayer, there's no advancement. When Moses had his hands lifted towards God in prayer, holding that staff over the army, there was success. But when his hands got tired and he started to say, I just can't, I can't hold it up anymore, then the enemy began to get success. Prayer moved the victory forward. You know, as believers, we can expect attacks and persecution and spiritual battles. Also physical, because we belong to Christ. And prayer is an incredibly important, indispensable tool in that warfare, especially against the invisible realm. There are forces of evil in the world who, like the Amalekites, have no fear of God and are ruthlessly self-serving, trying to discourage and destroy God's purposes and his people. And our battle is against them. It's not against flesh and blood, it's against the spiritual forces of wickedness, the principalities and powers, the forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm, who just like the Amalekites would take captive and destroy the weary and weak if possible. And the only way to defeat those forces of wickedness is through our two main spiritual offensive weapons. Do you remember what they are? Ephesians chapter 6, part of the armor. Sword of the Spirit, prayer. You go over there and look, prayer. Prayer is a key weapon, offensive weapon in the spiritual battle. Moses was the leader of these people, and as leader, that was his most important job, lifting his hands, interceding with and for God. Because this wasn't just a battle 
for Israel. This was a battle for God. You know, Joshua had the physical aspect of saving the people in battle, but his success depended on Moses' prayers. And so you see, success belongs to the Lord, and he gives it in response to prayer. Now, Moses, now here's something about prayer. Moses got tired on the job. You notice that? So Aaron and her helped him. The work of praying for spiritual victory can be exhausting. We're not supposed to do the work of prayer by ourselves. The load is too great. In the New Testament, Paul, writing to the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, commands that the people pray as one of their first spiritual responsibilities. He's talking to Timothy, he's pastor of this church, young pastor, but he's talking through him to the people of the church. I urge then, first of all, first of all, not first of all, get together and have coffee and catch up on the gospel. Not first of all, get together and read the Bible. Not first of all, go out into the streets and do ministry. First of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. There it is. There's the heart of God. He doesn't want to see people destroyed like the Amalekites or the people of Israel attacked and destroyed by such people forces. He wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. The news is out. It's good. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands. There it is, lifting up hands. Holy hands without anger or disputing. What are anger and disputing? Aren't they evidence that were given in sometimes to the flesh, to our personal ends, to our desire to grind the axe? Without anger or, or disputing, lift up holy hands in prayer. The men everywhere. Now, he targets men, and if you read on in this passage, there's something for women, but I think we can take the men generically. It's men and women. We're equal partners in that prayer battle. And it's not just the leaders that are being targeted by this message from Paul. It's all men everywhere who to pray, and that doesn't exclude the women. All the people are to pray. You know, our success in accomplishing our mission is contingent on our prayers. If we're not praying, we're not going to be able to knock down the spiritual opposition that is harassing and destroying God's people and purposes. You know, it's one of the reasons that several years ago, seeing a mission God had for us, but not being quite on the same page to get to that mission, a vision of what that mission could be, that we realized we had to start praying. We talked to a church in Hamburg that had got a vision to reach out to the people of the community of Hamburg, and they told us we didn't do a thing until we had been praying, praying, praying constantly for three years how God wanted us to do what he wanted us to do to reach this community. That's why we started to pray. 
Because we started to get this into our heads that there's nothing going to happen for the mission of the advancement of the kingdom of God if we are not earnestly, daily, regularly lifting our hands to God in prayer for what he wants, for the battle that's his. Now, that's why Jesus himself prayed so often. He didn't want to go and do his mission in his own strength. How often do we try to walk the Christian walk in our own strength and we fall short and we wonder why we're weary? And weak. But we try like to, to do it alone, holding up that staff. But we need an Aaron and a her on the side of us to help us, to hold it up. And that's why he instructs his apostles to pray and keep on praying, to pray continually without ceasing. So that God's purposes and will can be done. You know, it's one of the reasons that every Sunday, and I hope every day, we need to be praying that piece of the Lord's Prayer that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not being done on the earth. It needs to be prayed into being. God wants His will to be done, and part of the way that happens is when God's people pray and seek Him so that it will happen. And the converse is, of that is true. If we're not praying, we're often not going to see it happen. We're, we're going to see the Amalekites winning. Now, are we sick of that? Yeah. Amen. Okay, two more things. Coming in for a landing. <laughs> We're approaching the airport. Joshua obtained the victory. You know, Joshua's name means Yahweh saves, or God saves. Remember that the angel told Mary to name her son Jesus, which means God saves. Joshua is the Old Testament version of Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua. And Joshua is a type of Christ, the bringer of spiritual victory and salvation. He is the commander of God's army. He's already humiliated the powers and principalities. He's defeated them by his death on the cross, by which he took away their right to have power over us because of our sins, because he paid for our sins. And he has the authority to decisively defeat evil. That's why when he appointed his disciples, you and me, to go out, he said, I give you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy, and nothing will by any means harm you. You and I have authority in the name of Jesus to overcome and trample on those evil spirits. That's what the Jewish exorcists called the evil spirits in those days, snakes and scorpions. Two categories of demons. If we're in Christ, we have that authority because we are in him. He's the king, and as his representatives, we get to carry the sword on his behalf. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he said, and I send you. I send you like lambs into the midst of wolves, but I send you on a mission to accomplish God's purposes. In this spiritual battle we face, our prayers are what help move things along, preparing the way for spiritual victory. But Jesus is the true general who can get the job done. If you're facing a warfare and you're trying to win it by yourself, it's time to give up and give yourself to Jesus. Get on the side with his army, and then you're going to get into victory. In the name of Jesus is salvation from our enemies, beginning with those powers and principalities. And that means getting into his way, walking with him, not straggling or lagging behind in the path of discipleship. Well, there you are, Jesus. You, you know, you're asking me to follow you, and here's what you're telling me to do. But, you know, I think I'm just going to go over here for a little while. 
and do it my way. I did it my way. That'll be over the gates of hell. They did it their way. Really? Jesus is the place where spiritual victory takes place. He's the one in whom it happens. And that brings me to the last point. Now we are landing. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Think about the memorial altar Moses built for after the battle, and he named it Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. What's a banner? When armies go out to fight, they fight on behalf of something, and that something is represented by their banner, the flag. The Roman legions carried a standard, an eagle, on top of a pole. And as long as that was standing, the Roman soldiers knew that's what they were fighting for, what that pole stood for. Think about the soldiers, like the Americans, who hoisted the flag at Iwo Jima. The flag was their banner, representing the country and the allies they fought for. It was a symbol of what they represented, who they represented. So that when Moses called the altar, the memorial altar, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, he was declaring, God is my standard. He's the country we fight for. He is my banner. The battle belongs to the Lord. This was the Lord's fight. We're fighting for him. We're not asking him to come alongside and fight for us. He's involved in a huge battle to bring righteousness and justice, the gospel, the good news, salvation and freedom and release and cap from captivity to sin into the world. And that's his grand scheme to bring love and redemption into the creation. That's a war that he's going to win. And he's inviting us to come along his side and fight with him. You know, if we want to live in true spiritual victory and be successful in the spiritual battles we face, we need to make that transition from flying our own flag, living for ourselves with a little bit of Jesus thrown in, to flying his flag and living for him. Amen? This is Jehovah Nissi. Then we'll be fighting his battles in which he is delighted to give us the victory. So whose banner are you running under now? Are you under the banner of the master and following where he leads? Are you still kind of like, I think I'm going to hold my own banner for a while. And you're experiencing defeat. And Moses got a key insight here in the way spiritual victory happens. is to join the one who has the victory in his hands. And let him be that victory. So many times in, in the Bible, in the spiritual battles, you, you see God telling his people, you don't need to do anything. Just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord in this battle. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. And it's when they're in him and trusting him that they experience the victory. And not because they've done it by their own power. Joshua was losing when the power of God was fading from the scene. But when the power of God was appealed to and surrendered to, then victory came. And victory will come to us, to you and me. Well, that's what I got. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for these... Uh,
these spiritual battles that you allowed your people and you led them, you actually led them through the wilderness, each stage step to step, and not just for their sake, but so that us upon whom the fulfillment of the ages have come can learn, can learn to walk in you, to know your ways, and experience the victory of love, the victory of deliverance, the victory of release from the destroying hand of of your enemies, the victory of salvation in Jesus. And Lord, we just ask you to strengthen us this week. Fill us with your spirit. We want to lift up hands and commit ourselves to that, to pray and seek you. I know, Lord, as a pastor, of the, the pastor of this church, that that's one of my key responsibilities is to pray. And, but I need the errands and the hers. I'm not supposed to do this alone. We're supposed to have people, all men everywhere. <laughs> Nobody gets a pass. We're supposed to be praying. And so here we are, Lord. We present ourselves to you for that. We want to experience your victories and see those spiritual Amalekites who are destroying your people and getting the stragglers and the weary and the weak ones, to see them routed and defeated. Victory belongs to you, Lord. And we just lift up the, your name, Jesus, over us today, our Jehovah Nisi. Amen. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Igniting Your Faith is copyrighted and published by Dr. Chris Fisher and First Church, Schuylkillhaven, Pennsylvania. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.